What is up, my friends at the Mill Sunday School? You're supposed to say, yes, it's starting. Let's give it a try. See? There it is. All right. Uh, how's everybody doing? You doing good on this Memorial Day weekend? Is anybody doing anything fun tomorrow? You are? One person is doing something fun? All right. Well, why don't you take a second, pull out your Bibles to Joshua. We're going to look at the first chapter. And uh, make sure you meet the people around you at your table or at other tables. Meet them. Learn their names just for fun. We're going to be looking at Joshua 1.7 just to get us started. Sort of our little devotional this morning. And it's Joshua 1.7. This month we're talking about the Bible. How many of you guys like the Bible? Me too. I love it. And so this passage... Is kind of about the Bible. Here's what it says. Joshua 1 Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. And I think the law that the servant Moses gave you is in fact our scripture. It's our word. It's the first five books of the Bible. So it's he's talking about the word of God here. The, obey the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Amen, huh? All right, let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you. We invite you here. God, we know that you are already here. And so, God, would you just open up our minds, open up our hearts to you. As the Mill Sunday School, God, we just say, come in here. Teach us something new. Teach us something fresh. God, we want to be better servants. We want to know you better and have a better relationship with you, Jesus. And every one of us love you, and we thank you. And everybody screamed, amen. (laughs) All right. If you're new to the Mill Sunday School, here's what it's all about. The Mill Sunday School, I thank you for paying the price, being here this morning. I know for a lot of you, it's early. Raise your hand if it's early for you. It is. I mean, it's, it's like 9.30, 9.45, and it's early for some of us. Some of us didn't go to bed until like 1 or 2 or stayed up watching Pirates of the Caribbean until who knows what time. And so you're here, and so I'm not going to waste your time. This is the Mill Sunday School. We are going to dive into the Bible, and we're going to learn about the Bible. This month has been, we're talking about conundrums, difficult passages in the Bible. We're going to look at a couple this morning, but first I wanted to um, continue our discussion. Last time we were talking about the different translations of the Bible. We talked about the NIV, KJV, the NKJV, the Message, the New Living, NASB, Amplified, all these different translations. And some of you came up to me and had different translations after Sunday school last week, and you were holding your Bible, and you were like, is, is this Bible okay to read? Is this translation good? <laughs> and that's not the point that I was trying to make, that there's good and bad translations. They're all good. NIV, KJV, New King James. The, I mean, you just name any amount of letters, and it's probably a version of the Bible. I think they're all good <clears throat> There's some translations that may be better or best, depending on what you're reading it for. I talked about the, how the NASB 
if you're writing this down, it's in your notes. I, I gave you some section to write this down. But the NASB is probably the most literal translation. We at New Life Church like the NIV because it's very literal and it's also very easy to read. It's a little easier than the NASB. Uh, we talked about... Um, what did we talk about? I, th- I think we didn't talk about the Amplified Version. The Amplified Version provides us with um, just an example of, of, of like an English phrase. You know the verse John 3.16, right? You know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. And so I'm, I'm just guessing. I, don't have, I think I have an Amplified somewhere, but I couldn't find it. And so if you're reading it, For God so loved the world... Next to the word world in parentheses or maybe above it or below it or something, this is the amplified version. It may something say something like, Jesus, so, God so loved the world, and it could say earth or universe or some, another synonym for the word world. That's the amplified version. Is that what it is? Is this the amplified? Oh, the AMP. God so begotten, unique, son. And then there's things in parentheses, eternal or everlasting life. Man, let's give a hand to the tech guys. They're here every week. They're really cool guys. And so the Amplified Version provides us with different choices. Uh, I think Aaron Stern says it's kind of like the choose-your-own-Bible story. Did you read those as a kid? Like, you turn to... Anyway. And so the reason why I don't... It's, the Amplified is a good translation. The reason why I personally don't like it is because I want a committee and a bunch of people with... Greek and, and Hebrew Bibles opened out in front of them to choose the best English word, looking right at the Greek, saying, this is the best word that we have for the English, instead of giving a bunch of choices and letting me decide. I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm not fluent in Greek. And so I don't, I want someone else, a committee of people to choose the translation for me. And so I just wanted to say that as far as translations, that there's no such thing as a bad translation. Actually, there, I guess there is. I mean, there's some translations out there that like take out the miracles of Jesus. I think Thomas Jefferson wrote a translation of the Gospels that just took out everything miraculous. That would be an example of a bad translation. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, have a translation called New World Translation. You ch- make sure your Bible isn't a New World Translation. But that would be... There would be a passage where, as Christians, we would say, you know what you guys did is you, you changed verses around to fit your beliefs and just uh, didn't have any regard for the Greek or the Hebrew, but you just changed verses to fit your beliefs. That would be a bad translation. But I just wanted to clear up that that's, a lot of you are bringing me your like living Bibles and message Bibles and T and IVs and saying, is this okay? Of course it's okay. They're good translations. I didn't mean to give you the wrong idea last week. Everybody say conundrums. We're going to look at a few conundrums today, but I first want to give you the rules of solving difficult passages. I'm going to write some stuff on the board. I'm going to write the letter C three times. You can do that too. I know a lot of you take good notes at the Mill Sunday School. It makes me feel good when you're writing things. Because then I'm like, wow, maybe I just said something cool. You're writing it down. And then you guys... Like, I take notes when I'm listening to sermons as well, or when I'm listening in class. I just think it's a good practice. And so, here's the three, uh, the rules. One, two, three. C, C, C. <laughs> what do the three stand for, do you think? So, context, who just said that? What a champion. 
context, context, oops, context. One, two, three. If you find a difficult passage, you first want to look at the context of the passage that it's in. You, then you want to think about uh, the context of the whole Bible itself. And then uh, you want to look at the context of the social and cultural, uh, social context of the social and cultural maybe norms of the time that it was written. So the three C's, the context is king. So if someone gives you a difficult passage or someone says, you know what, I've heard, I've heard that this, uh, I wish I had an example to give you, but someone just comes up, oh, I do have an example. I had this buddy that, um, have you ever heard of the passage in Genesis of the Nephilim? Have you? Some of you are like, what? And it's okay if you're like, what? Because it's, it's just one tiny little verse. I think it's in Genesis. Let me, if you could, if you want to look at it, you can. But it's just so, it's so small and, and, and weird, to be honest with you. Genesis 6.4 says, The Nephilim, everybody say, what's that? We really don't know. But the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And so also afterwards. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men, they had children by them. They were the heroes of old. Men of renown. Does that explain who the Nephilim were? I don't know. And then then it just goes on and starts talking about other things. That's really the only passage that we have that talks about the Nephilim. I think there's one other random little verse somewhere else that talks about the Nephilim. But I had this friend, kind of the weird Christian guy, that's also really smart, but then likes the weird things. You know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you may fall into that boat. and, And we love you. But he was all about the Nephilim and all about how these people, these giants, were like, the, he, he believed that the, the different races, like Chinese, African, all came from different Nephilim. Or so he had this big theory about the Nephilim and he was always talking about it. And I was just like, hey, you're weird because that's one tiny little passage in the entire Bible that talks about Nephilim. So the big idea, the rule, is that you can't, make a big theo theological um, idea idea from one verse exclamation point you can't make one you have to look at the entire bible and say how important is this idea of the nephilim well it turns out not very important it's just one little passage and to be honest with you i bet lots of different Commentaries, lots of different scholars have different ideas about who these Nephilim were. It's just a weird passage. So, looking at the context of the entire Bible, you would you would have to come to the realization that this Nephilim idea, you can't make this big theological idea about this about the Nephilim. They're silly. So that's the example I wanted to give you. Let's look at um, some. Let's look at in your notes. It says no hat, no. P-. You might be thinking, what is that about? Well. A couple weeks ago, actually the first time of this month, we did some Q&A. Do you remember your questions? How many of you were here when we did that? There's like three of you. Come on. I know you all were here because I have all your questions right here. And so you put down questions about different Bible conundrums. And this person wrote down 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 10. 
And then it just says, no hat, no prey, question mark. And you may think to yourself, that's not even a question. That's silly. But I, with my theological eyes and mind, see this and realize right where this person's at. And they're like, they have a question about the passage that says that women must cover their heads and men must not cover their heads when they're in prayer. This, my friends, is a conundrum. It's really not that big of a deal, but it is a Bible passage that's difficult because we don't do it. Are, is there any woman in here that has her head covered? I don't need, I'm, I'm looking around and, and no one has their head covered. But let's read this passage. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3. If you want to turn there, um, some of you do. Some of you like bringing your Bibles. I think that's cool because then you can look at it and see it with your own eyes. But we do put it on the board as well. 1 Corinthians 11.3. This is a Bible conundrum that I think we could solve by using the three C's. It says this, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, head of every, every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. <laughs> every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is as though her head were shaved. Everybody say, whoa, shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. It is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved. She should cover her head. Verse 7 says, A man ought to not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For God, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created from woman, but woman from man. For this reason, and because of the angels... A, the woman must. The woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Wow! As Paul seems to. So Paul seems to think he's writing this letter to the, the the house churches that meet in the city of Corinth, this ancient city around 60 A.D. And he seems like this seems like to Paul to be a pretty big deal. And it also seems. Uh, I went on a mission trip one time with is a new life mission trip to Pakistan. It was with a couple guys. I think it was three or four of us. We went to Pakistan. We met up with this missionary. It was kind of, we had lots of time to pray over Pakistan and learn about Pakistan and help this missionary out. And we were talking, and uh, somebody asked the question, why does every, as soon as like everybody goes to worship or pray, everybody puts on a little, uh, like their little scarf thing. I don't know what it's really called. They put on their little scarf thing, and everybody covers their head, whether they're male or female. And it just so happens that most of the females, even Christians, when we went to this Christian church, all the girls would be on one side, all the guys would be on the other side, and all the women, even though they, weren't, they were not Muslim, they were Christians, were totally covered in, uh, what is it called? It's not a dress with a scarf, what is it? Burqa, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they all had burqas on, and they even had their faces covered. And if they weren't married yet, and they were uh, in their teenage years or, or further along, they would have their whole faces covered and nothing but their eyes would be shown. And they're Christians. And they believed, like this verse said, that the women should be covered. But the men had the... In, the, in that culture, in Pakistan, if you go before, like, the El Presidente or a king or... Uh, <laughs> that's a different language. Never mind. If you go before someone that is higher up than you, what you would do is, is put on you would cover your head in respect to that person. That's totally opposite of what we do, right? When we kind of pray or when we meet with the president, we don't have our ball caps on, right? We'd probably take it off and say, hi, I'm Joe, nice to meet you. It's a, we 
would show our respect by taking off our hat. That's the same thing they did in the Greek and Roman culture that we'll get to in just a second. So the Pakistani Christians had a really hard time with this verse because in their culture, to show respect, you would cover your head. And so all the Pakistani, all this Eastern culture, they would cover their head and pray to the God of the Bible. And when they read this, it was just really confusing to them. They were like, why? I don't understand. They had a problem with this verse. We, as Christians in 2007, may have a problem with this verse as well because it clearly says that women should cover their head. And I'm looking around and nobody's covering their head. None of the girls are covering their head. What's the deal? Girls? (laughs) Here's the deal. Here's how I would explain it. The three C's. The context of the passage says that it seems like a pretty important idea. The context of the whole Bible. How many passages are there about people covering their heads in the Bible? I think this may be it. I think this passage may be the only passage in the Bible that talks about covering their heads. And so we have to look at the third C, the context of the social and cultural norms at the time. And that is really what Paul is talking to. In the Greek and the Roman culture, you know that Corinth sits in Greece, but Greece at that time was uh, uh, Roman run. They had the culture that if a woman did not cover her hair and her hair uh, was out, then that woman was probably a prostitute. It was just, it was, it was just a sign that that she that she was promiscuous or whatever. And so, they must have had some sort of problem in the context of this Corinthian church that some of the women were maybe taking their new freedom found in Christ and saying, "I don't have to wear this dumb covering anymore. I'm a Christian." But Paul is saying, "No, in your culture." A woman that doesn't have her hair covered is a prostitute. You're causing people to stumble. It's a big deal. And so Paul writes them and says, Women, you still need to, to cover your hair. You still need to put a, a cover your hair. And so it's the context of the social and cultural norms that helps us bust through this conundrum. Isn't that fun? Everybody say, oh, we got Some of the girls are covering their heads now. <laughs> But you don't have to. We just talked about it. So we're good. So you, And so in our culture, um, some of you like wear hats. Some, I wear baseball hats sometimes. And uh, if you're praying, sometimes I'll take it off. Sometimes I'll forget. Is it really a big deal? I don't think so. In our culture, I don't think it's that big of a deal. If I have my hat on and forget to, to take it off when I'm praying, does it cancel the prayer and make it not count? Some of you are like, yeah, it does. That's how it works. No, that's not how it works. And so uh, it may offend people. I think in Sunday school, if you have a, a ball cap on and, and we pray and you forget to take it off, that's fine. Or if you don't even care and you don't take it off, I think that's totally fine. But in big church, when there's lots of old ladies around, you better take your hat off. Because they they will be offended and they'll, they'll hit you and say, take off your hat. What are you doing? Show respect to God. <laughs> right? So it is, I think this is a very cultural idea. That, that was a big deal, and to us, this whole hat thing isn't that big of a deal. So that is how we bust that conundrum. I feel like a myth buster, only a conundrum buster. That's one of my favorite shows on the Discovery Channel. All right, this one carries a lot more weight. The next one is the unforgivable sin on your notes. And the hat one is kind of funny, and we could just laugh about it a little bit. But this one carries a lot more weight to it. And some of you asked, 
when we did the Q&A, I think three or four of you asked about the unforgivable sin. So let's talk about it. The unforgivable sin. Luke 12. Uh, let's start reading in verse 4. Luke 12, verse 4. It says this. Towards the end of the passage, it's where it gets to the... It says the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That's, that's where we're going with this. But let's get... Let's do this, the context of the passage. That's why we're not just going to read the verse. We'll read a little bit before. Um, Luke 12, 4. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not be afraid. You are worth far more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. Here we go. Verse 10. Pay attention closely. If your mind's been wondering, slap it back. And who, whoever and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And in the rest of this passage, someone asks Jesus another question, and he kind of changes topics. So this is the context in which, the context of the passage in which we see that a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And so an unforgivable sin, that means in my thinking, that if you commit some sin that cannot be forgiven, then you will be separated from God and possibly go to hell. So you're all quietly thinking, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Aren't you? You probably should be in some ways. Because it just says that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Let me give you two interpretations of this verse that I've heard that I think are silly, that don't do the context of the three C's. The first one that I heard, um, uh, when I first became a Christian, somebody was telling me, I think it was just another kid in the youth group, my high school youth group was saying, yeah, when you swear, um, make sure you don't swear against the Holy Spirit because that's unforgivable. And I was like, what? And he, he didn't really say anything else, but he was like, yeah, that's what, there's this passage that says that. I was like, what? Is that really in there? And so what he meant was, if, if you're working construction, you're playing with a hammer, you drop the hammer on your foot, and you let the expletives fly. <laughs> and I, worked, I used to work construction, and, uh, and I was working with guys that, that weren't even mad. They were just always swearing. How many of you know the, the kind of people I'm talking about? I worked with construction for like three years, and they were just, I mean, just being nice about it. Go get the blankety-blank board, and oh... Why don't you put it on, put it over there. No, put it over, blankety-blank over there. And it, it was just, for them, it was just the way of talking. And I, just working with them for eight hours, I'm a Christian, I was a, a leader at New Life Church, I began having a swearing problem. <laughs> Not, just because it was just all the time. And so, it was usually, I usually never said it out loud, but it was, you know how when you're, like, if I, for instance, dropped a hammer on my foot, out, you kind of under your breath, you'd be like, oh, oh, oh. I was just catching myself, to always doing that, and that's not good. Um, I, I had to, 
it's just not good. It was, it was a bad situation. But it was, um, I don't know why I shared that. But <clears throat> just confessing my sins. The Bible says to do that. So um, I, uh, so th- that interpretation of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would say, that person would say that if you accidentally drop a hammer on your foot and instead of letting expletives fly that are about God or about Jesus or just swear words, that if you let an expletive fly that references the Holy Spirit, then you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You have taken the name of the Holy Spirit in vain, and that's unforgivable. I don't like that. Do you like that? I think that is honestly quite silly because in the context of the whole Bible, you don't go to hell based upon making one little mistake with your mouth, right? You go to heaven or hell. You're judged on the basis of what you do with your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if you accept Him as your Savior savior, and have a relationship with Him, that's the basis on which you're saved. Not upon the basis of whether you made a one little mistake with your mouth after accidentally dropping a hammer on your foot working construction. <laughs> Eddie, I love you, buddy. Or spraining your ankle. Yeah, you just let the expletives fly. Sometimes you have to. <laughs> I'm just kidding, by the way. So let's let's dig into this passage a little bit. Um, I, I was going to give you another tra- another interpretation. This one makes a little more sense, but I think it's also silly. And it doesn't. I think this one in particular, the the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We really have to look at the context of the whole Bible. It's in the context of the passage. It really doesn't define the baptism, or excuse me, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The social and cultural norms. I think the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means the same thing as us today: taking the Holy Spirit's name in vain, and uh, or treating it uselessly, or so on and so forth. That's just what blasphemy means. If you blaspheme God, you're t- you're saying bad things about God, or you're taking His name in vain. And so we really have to look at this one. But anyways. I was going to give you an example of a bad interpretation of this. And I heard, a, I was going to this charismatic church in Florida, like a really charismatic. Some of you know what I'm talking about, where there, you know, there's just lots of, um, some of you have probably seen slain, someone getting slain in the spirit, like praying for somebody and they fall over and they're shaking. Uh, some of you have been to churches where they speak in tongues a lot. Some of you have been to churches where you might laugh, but there's barking, like barking in the Lord. <laughs> You're not laughing, which is making me feel very awkward. Um, but there, there's just churches out there. Just don't, don't, don't think about that too much. But um, I was going to this very charismatic church, and a leader of a small group was saying that his interpretation of this verse is that all those people who don't believe that healings are for today, all the people, all the Christians that don't believe that uh, the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy is for today, it's those people that are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And it's an unforgivable sin. So I just kind of sat there and listened to him. But then my mind logically progressed to, to the context of him using that as his interpretation, saying, wait a minute, are all my Baptist friends, all my Presbyterians friends, for whatever reason, that would say that um, the, Bible, the Bible is our word of God, that as soon as the Bible came together in its canon, that we no longer have miraculous things happen today because they would say we don't see them right i mean people have different reasons for not believing in the miraculous for today i highly believe in the miraculous for today and the gift of tongues because 
I speak in tongues. And so, so I have to believe in it, right? Um, so this, this small group leader was saying, everyone that, that blasphemes the Holy Spirit is saying that these gifts aren't for today. And I just think that's, that's not right. I mean, I have a lot of Baptist friends that love God, that love the Bible, that evangelize. But maybe for some reason, maybe they were just burnt by a church that, that uh, was too emotional and was too crazy on charismatic things like speaking in tongues. And they were burnt by that in whatever situation. Um, and then so they, they would just say, yeah, that's for that church, but it's not really for me. I'm not saying that that person goes to hell. I think that would be silly. Don't you? In the context of the entire Bible, you're judged based upon what you do and your belief with Jesus Christ and Him on the cross, not upon um, whether you speak in tongues or not, right? And so I think that's a silly translation. Here is how I would translate, here's how I would interpret that verse that says that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. If you look at the context of the entire Bible, as I've been saying these last few minutes, we're saved based upon what we do with Jesus Christ, right? And so to create a whole new theology about this one little verse and say, oh, well, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is also this. This is a way to lose your salvation. I think that might be silly. It might be making a big theological idea from one verse. We can't do that. And so I would say my, tra- my interpretation of this verse is that... Um, is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would be saying to God, um, God, I know that you're real, and I know that you're true, but I don't want to follow your ways. I'm blaspheming uh, the, the Holy Spirit by saying that I know your works are here, I know that you're true, I know what Jesus did on the cross, but I don't care. In my spirit, I just don't. I want to do my own thing, my own life, and leave your ways behind, God. I think that is the, on the basis of the whole Bible. That's the reason why people are separated from God. And I think it's upon that basis of the whole Bible that that is what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Has anyone ever thought about this verse? It's a pretty big verse if you think about it because it's saying that there's an unforgivable sin. But I would say that um, I read a commentary that said, if you're worried that you may have committed a sin and can't be forgiven, then don't be concerned. If you're worried about it, you haven't committed it. Has anyone ever heard that before? My, I think my YouTuber said that to me one time because I was like, is it possible that I did this? <laughs> I would say, I would, I would be right on with this commentary and say, in the context of the whole Bible, if you're really worried about offending the Holy Spirit, then this, that verse isn't for you. That verse is for someone that says, yeah, I know what the Holy Spirit does. I know God. I know what Jesus did for me, but I don't care. I want to do my own thing on this earth and live out my own life in disregard to what God would say. Conundrum. Oh, this is so fun. All right. Uh, the unforgivable sin. Red pill or blue pill? Do you all know what I'm talking about here? Raise your hand if you do. Okay. Okay, good. Some of you are like, I have no idea. Um, also, I put, just, just for weird things on the skillet. This is called a skillet. It's a Sunday school millet. That's how it got its name. Uh, on the back I put, did you see this? Were some of you offended? If reading the Bible were easy... It'd be called snowboarding. <laughs> it's true, though, huh? Just kidding. Oh, that, I, I make myself laugh every day. Red pill or blue pill? Here is um, what I'm talking about. This is all about 
free will. Oh, we got the Matrix thing. Look at that. Some of you are still very confused because you've never seen the movie. I don't know how you could live your life in 2007 and not see the Matrix, but you need to stop whatever you're doing. I give you permission to just up and leave Sunday school. Go to Blockbuster, get the Matrix, and go watch it. You've never seen it? Go see it. It's amazing. Here's why I talk about red pill, blue pill. Here, let me first explain it, because I'm sure some of you haven't seen it, and I exaggerate in saying that it's, you should go home right now. But it's, it's the scene where the main character meets this big dude named Morpheus who knows everything, knows a lot of things. And Morpheus says, Do you believe that your life is predestined and set before you? And Neo, the main character, says, No. Morpheus says, Why not? Neo says, I don't like the way that feels. I like to be in control of my own life. And so the whole trilogy of The Matrix goes back and forth between Neo being the one or becoming the one. If he's predestined or if he, by his own free will, becomes the, becomes the one. And so it's a pretty good movie, by the way. Um, it's a pretty good trilogy. You should go see it. Um, and so I say that to say that many of you, I have all these cards up here, of people that asked about predestination versus free will. Let me read some of these questions that you gave me the first day we did the Bible conundrums um, topic. You explained God's will last week. How does free will play into that? How could a loving God raise people up to destroy them? If he controls all things, how does he hold us accountable? Good question. Exodus something. If God doesn't mess with our free will, then how did God mess with Pharaoh's heart? when he hardened it. That's a good one, huh? Acts 13, are certain people predestined for eternal life? What does this mean about free will? Some of your questions, I'm, I was actually impressed reading your questions. I mean, obviously this is the Mill Sunday School and you guys are here to learn. And we have a high caliber of people in the Mill Sunday School. I appreciate that. But I really recognize that through reading your questions that you guys got it going on. Um, does God preordain people to be condemned? Ooh, good question. Why would God create imperfect beings knowing that they would mess it up if he is perfect and all-knowing? You explain... Okay, then we got back to the beginning. So these questions are all about... And there's quite a few of them here out of the, out of the big batch. They were all about predestination versus free will. Mama Gump saying, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You have to make your life what it is for us. And then on the other side, Lieutenant Dan saying... Life is destiny. I was destined to die in a war that my father, my great-grandfather, my father before him died in. That was my destiny. And so these two main characters talk to Forrest Gump about free will versus predestination. It's the feather falling in the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie. It's, it's floating. You have no idea where it's going. Free will, yet it lands where it's supposed to. Predestination. That's good, huh? I just summarized two movies for you this morning. So you're like, man, that's cool, sweet. Here's let's look at let's look at uh, Exodus nine twelve, shall we? This is the verse that uh, says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The conundrum of God taking someone's life, taking someone's free will, and not giving it to them, and taking away their free will and saying, "You must be my bad guy on earth." so that my works can be done. Exodus 9.12. Oh, it just says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and would not listen 
And he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. So do you see it there? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Moses keeps on going to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. As the, you know the song, right? And then, uh, and then different, there's like a plague of gnats and a plague of frogs, a plague of blood. All these different plagues. Moses keeps on going back to Pharaoh. And some of the passages say God hardened Pharaoh's heart once again. And some of the passages, some of the different plagues, say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It didn't say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so there's different passages about, but this one clearly says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So what's the deal? Free will versus predestination. Well, if we look at the three C's, the context of the passage says clearly that God hardened his heart. The context of the social, cultural norms doesn't really help us out that much. The context of the whole Bible even. The whole Bible has verses in it that talk about free will. And on the same side, talk about predestination. Let me show you a verse in particular that Calvinists and Arminianists both like. Did I just say a term that you're unfamiliar with? Let me put up... uh, No, I'll just leave that. We'll just talk about it. Um, Predestination. Some people would call themselves Calvinists if they are all about... And there's five-point Calvinists. We really don't have time to talk about all that um, shenanigans right now. But... uh, And it kind of is shenanigans in a way, because for 2,000 years, the church has gone back and forth between the idea of predestination and free will, between God's sovereignty, that He is in control of everything. That's true, right? That God is sovereign, and the idea that we have human responsibility in our life. That's true as well, right? And so we would be kidding ourselves if we were really going to bust this conundrum here this morning. But we'll see what happens. And so Romans 8.29. Some of you really like this verse. Whether you're Calvinistic, meaning predestination, or whether you're Arminianistic, meaning free will, you both like this verse for different reasons. Romans 8.29 says, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And that those that He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. So if someone that is really big into predestination would say, look right there, it says predestination twice. God predestined them. That God had set their lives apart. They are predestined to be in this or that job, this or that position, this or that husband or wife, this or that, whether they have salvation or not. God has everything mapped out and predestined. It says it right here. But then, someone on the other side saying, I like free will and the idea of human responsibility better. They would say, yes, it does say that God predestined them, but the little words before that explain it better to them. For those God foreknew, He also predestined. So a person with a more uh, Arminianistic background would say that God knew that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened, and so he hardened it more. God knew that Pharaoh was a bad dude, and God was going to even punish him by using his own heart, hardening his own heart, embarrassing him even more with more plagues, that God knew Pharaoh would not let the people of Israel go, and so God punished Pharaoh even more by hardening his heart. Do you see it? So it goes both ways, that God does, yes, God does predestined things, But human responsibility is also in the mix. Clearly, throughout the whole Bible, we see predestination 
free will. That myth, I mean, that conundrum, All right, uh, the last one I want to look at, and, and you realize that, that was the one we probably busted the least because then um, you're like, what? We didn't just bust anything. <laughs> we kind of didn't. You're right. We didn't really. Yeah, it's, it's plausible. And so um, that's just uh, these questions, and, and uh, the, even though you asked a lot of them uh, at your tables and your groups, you asked why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why would... God predestined people. What's the deal with the free will if we're predestined? Um, there's really no solution. We can say clearly that in the Bible, God is sovereign. He has everything under control. But yet, at the same time, what is also true is that you and I have a responsibility to do what is right on this earth. It's a little mysterious, don't you think? So, so it's both. It's both. All right, the book of Hosea. This is our last conundrum that we're going to look at. The book of Hosea has a really big conundrum in it. Some of you, I think two people asked about this particular conundrum of Hosea, that God tells Hosea to marry an adulterous woman. He tells Hosea, this prophet, to marry a prostitute woman. Everybody say, what the... He didn't even say it. Turn to Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. I'll, I'll show it to you. It's definitely, definitely a conundrum. Hosea chapter 1, if you're looking for it, it's, a, it's one of those small books that you'll spend like a half hour looking for. It's right after Daniel, and it's right before uh, Joel and uh, Amos, and then Matthew is in there after that somewhere. I still hear people flipping for it. I know, it's a hard one to find. On my Bible, it's page 1323. It doesn't help you at all, I'm sure. Alright, it says this. Hosea, this is the book of Hosea, chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take for yourself an adulterous wife, children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. A conundrum, don't you think? That God would tell a man to go marry someone who is not walking with the Lord. So much so that some translations say, go marry yourself a harlot or a prostitute. The, the NIV says an adulterous woman. And so, how can that be? I was talking with a guy one time when I was um, a small group leader and uh, he was... <laughs> He was dating or starting to date this girl that was a non-Christian. And so we were just talking. And I said, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about who you date. And that who you date uh, becomes who you marry. The Bible has a lot to say about marrying a woman or a man of uh, that's walking with the Lord. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians 6.14, if you're wondering, that says, Do not be yoked together with the unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What can fellowship have? Uh, what fellowship can light have with darkness? There's lots of verses that say, here's what a, a woman that you should marry would look like. Proverbs 31, for instance, says that you should marry, that a godly woman should be your wife, that she, uh, that there's a whole list, the whole chapter is about what a godly woman should look like that you should marry. And then for men as well, that women, you should marry a godly guy. So why is this verse in here that says, that God says to Hosea, go marry someone that's not walking with the Lord, that's an adulterous 
a harlot or a prostitute wife. Why in the world is this in here? Conundrum, don't you think? And so, we have to do our three C's. The context of the passage. The context of the whole Bible. And the context of the social and cultural norms. And what I came to in my conclusion is, uh, is this. There's, there's a couple stories, modern day accounts of this uh, story taking place. One is like this weird French film that I didn't see called Bella de Jour. Anybody see that film? Okay, good, because I think it's X-rated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, it's explain. I didn't see it, first of all, and it's X-rated on the British scale. Our scale would be R. But if it, it's a movie that, um, that, you know, that I, I, I have a lot of respect for people that, that, that realize their limits in going to see movies, that wait for movies to come out on DVD. Like, for instance, The Matrix. I waited for the, for the second movie in The Matrix to come out on DVD because I heard that there's this gratuitous sex scene in The Matrix number two. So I waited for it to come out on DVD, watched it with some friends, and then we fast-forwarded that part of the sex scene. And that's how we watched The Matrix 2. I have a lot of respect for people that do that. My youth pastor, when we were watching Braveheart, there's a bunch of guys <coughs> watching the movie Braveheart. I first became a Christian. He stopped the movie, right? At, there's a sex scene in the movie Braveheart as well. And then fast-forwarded through that scene and then pushed play and then let us watch the rest of the movie Braveheart and all the blood and guts. But it was the sex scene that he was, as young men, just becoming Christians, he wanted to protect us from that. I have a lot of respect for that. So anyways, there's this movie. There's a, there's a Christian book called Redeeming Love by Francie Rivers. Anybody read that? Any guys read that? Don't raise your hand. <clears throat> my, my wife read it and said that, that it's uh, the story of the retelling of, this, of, this, uh, of the story of Hosea and Gomer. And what, what the book is about, or what the movie is about, is about a, a woman that, um, that, is, that is horribly molested as a child and in her adolescence is molested. And she grows up and has emotional problems and sexual problems. She marries a, a, a high-class dude, a doctor. They get married, and on the night of their wedding, they don't consummate their marriage. About a year later, they have still not had sex. And so the man is thinking to himself, the, the whole movie is about this relationship. The man is obviously frustrated. He's angry. He's, I mean, just all the feelings. And that's not how a marriage is supposed to work, right? Right. Some of you are like, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe that's how it works. No, that's not how it works. And so this, the film is about this woman and, and the man trying to figure her out and still loving her as his wife. And then she, the man turns out that, and finds out that the wife has been sneaking out at night and being the local prostitute. I mean, just imagine the, the horror, the anger, the pain, and just the emotions that would go along with that. And just realizing that that's a bad situation. And this, so this whole story, the, the book and the movie, are kind of about this love that the man has for this adulterous woman that is, that is an that is a love that's selfless. And he continues to love her and work through this horrible problem instead of just divorcing her on the spot. And I think that's the bigger picture of the horribleness of this situation. That, that, that God told Hosea to go marry a prostitute as a wife. That is a horrible, horrible situation. It's not something that is meant to be repeated. 
It's not something that we could say, oh, look, here God, God is saying, go marry someone that is, that is an unbeliever, that is not walking with the Lord, that that's okay. No, it's not okay. That's a horrible, horrible situation. And in the context of the passage, it's talking about that God feels the same way for His people, the Israelites. The, the people of Israel are turning their backs away from God and worshiping wood, wooden and golden gods instead of the real God that created them. And this pain that God feels for His people is the same pain that maybe Hosea will feel when his wife leaves him and has promiscuous relationships outside of marriage. And so this, my friends, is it's a conundrum that's not supposed to be repeated. It's a horrible situation. You can't take this and say, oh, it's cool that we that, that if we find someone that's really hot and we want to date them and they're not a believer, that that's cool because Hosea did it. He's a prophet. No, that's a bad situation. That conundrum, but. All right, here's the big point. Before we go, the big point is this. Um, I don't know that we have to have every conundrum figured out to be able to be a Christian, right? Because, I mean, I don't have them all figured out. Neither should you. There's a book out there that, that really tries to figure out all the conundrums. It says it's the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. And I think this, um, this book really does. It takes on every hard spot in the Bible, and it writes a page, at least or more, about each one of the, the difficult or hard passages of the Bible. Some of them, they, they do really good at answering um, the conundrum that's going on. They definitely bust the conundrum. Some of them, it doesn't even seem like they come close. Remember the conundrum I talked about where um, there's one passage in Second Samuel that gives the number of 800,000 men, and then when the story is retold in, in First Chronicles, it says that there's a million and one hundred thousand men. It's the same story, two different numbers, a uh, definite conundrum, a definite um, passage that looks like, is this a contradiction? Right? Remember that? How many of you are here for that? Here's the answer that the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties gives for that number variation. But in addition, there may have been 300,000 more men of military age who served in the reserves but have not yet been involved in field combat. There may have been. Yeah, no kidding. And so that's, the, that's their answer for, for, for saying that passage doesn't make sense. I think it's okay that if we're talking to, especially non-believers, that it's okay if we say the three words, I don't know. I think people really resonate with that. I think as Christians, sometimes we try to polish things off and shine things up so much so that it's not real to real life people out there. You know, this whole, the whole thing with, with the Pastor Ted and uh, where New Life Church is at right now, I've talked to, just in my, as, as I have small talk with people, it's usually, you know, well, what do you do? What do I do? And I say, well, I'm a pastor. I have the greatest job in the world. And they say, yeah, where, where are you a pastor at? And I'll say, uh, you know, New Life, <laughs> you've heard of it, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, I have. Every single person that's a non-Christian that does not come to New Life Church you know what? Every single one of them has said, I've talked to about six, maybe even seven people that are non-Christians, non-New Lifers, that I've kind of said that I'm from New Life. Every single one of them has said something along the lines of, yeah, you know what that situation does? It says that nobody's perfect and that we're all in need of a higher power. Or some of them said, all in need of God. I mean, yes, that is the point. That's the Christian message. 
that we're all in need of God and salvation. And I think as Christians, if we polish up so much so like the, the Bible and just say, oh, it's totally perfect. It's totally this polished, nice piece of work. Here you go. Read it. It'll make perfect sense to you. I don't know that that's true. I think people need to see what a real Christian is all about. I think the same thing goes for our Christian movies. I think in a lot of times, our Christian movies are just too polished. They're too nice. You know, if a non-Christian was to see it, they'd probably say something like, oh, come on, oh, gag me. You know, it's just too nice. You know, it's just way too polished. It's not real. I think, I think us as Christians need to say, yeah, you know what, we've messed up. You know what, the Bible has a lot of conundrum. It has a lot of confusing passages that I really can't explain. But here's what I know. It may just be a glimpse. It may just be a smidgen of what we do know. But what the Bible says over and over again, what is so clear is that God has a purpose for your life. That God loves you. He cares for you. So much so that He sent Himself down to die on a cross for your sins so that you could be redeemed. That's the whole context of the Bible. Come on. Alright, let's pray. How about we stand up and hold hands? That'd be fun, huh? Because we're Sunday school. We could do that. Let's stand up and hold hands. God, we just say to you, yes, God. We say yes to you and say, God, give us opportunities to talk to people this week over Memorial Day about how good your word is to us. God, we praise you. We thank you. We honor you. As the Mill Sunday School, God, we just go rejoicing saying that we love you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you that the Bible isn't so polished that we can't even resonate with it. That the Bible has stories of people like us, has stories of sinners, has stories of people making mistakes, and that we can resonate with that because the Bible is real, just like you've made us real, so that we can worship you, who is a perfect and all-knowing God. So we love you and we praise you this morning. And everybody said, Amen.